Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome. I'm Alice Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today, a pretty special conversation with someone that I really look up to. That's James Bashara, the co-founder of Tilt. Tilt was a crowdfunding company that had incredible success, attracting millions of users, tens of millions of dollars in investment, and a massive valuation before running into some challenges and selling to Airbnb. On the pay club journey, we think a lot about Tilt, we hear a lot about Tilt, so getting it straight from James today, I think is pretty cool. This conversation is not only special because of what James did with Tilt, but also because it provides a rare and candid look into the darker side of startup success. To the world, James did incredible things. He flew super close to the sun and then had the wings melt off his ship. All that, it took a pretty significant emotional toll on him and transformed the person that he is today. Ahead, an in-depth conversation on the real ups and downs of building a company valued at hundreds of millions of dollars, and then coming back down to earth. What that's like, why it happened, and the learnings from the experience. A quick update on Pay Club. Jason's been in New York for the last two weeks. He had back-to-back weddings out there, so we set up 22 meetings around it. He's been busy, and the meetings have been going really well. We got our first six-figure check this week. We got momentum, that mo. A lot of really exciting things in the company happening outside of the fundraise as well. Brandon, he's been absolutely crushing it in the app, making an experience that is pretty delightful. It's the most exciting part of my day when every night Brandon push and pushes a, a new version into the into test flight, and we see the progress. Wait until you guys see this product. It's going to blow you away. Okay, let's get into this special conversation with James. Let's talk about uh, early days, the whole James Bashara running around. Um, what kind of person were you? Like, when, did, when was it in your life that you started to become the, the guy you are today? Oh, that's a good question. Um, because usually it starts with, you know, telling me about entrepreneurial journey. But it obviously, that's always, you know, like mile 15 in the marathon. Um, there's So... Um, I, well, I'll start like from the very beginning. I'm the youngest of five kids. And, um, and so four older siblings grew up in Dallas, Texas, very, uh, kind of just warm, um, very extroverted family, just a a great place to grow up in a great family, um, growing up and being the youngest of five, I think it has taken me probably 
you know, 30 some odd years to figure this out. But I think those, those first five, six years were pretty formative of being the youngest of five. I had to, uh, I had to provide a lot of value to be included. If my, you know, a 10 year old brother was going to invite his five year old brother somewhere, he had to provide some value. So I think from a very early age, I got really good at seeing, okay, where can I be useful in this scenario? Um, whether it's like making a joke and, and trying to be funny, whether it was like actually like problem solving and figuring something out. Um, I think that that was pretty formative. Uh, so I'd say that's where it started. I, I think I, the, the, uh, barrier to being included was I had to be useful. Uh, so, so I think that's what wired my mind around just finding in almost any scenario, where can I be useful? That's, um, that's very enlightened that you're able to, to come up with. Well, like I said, it took me 30 plus years to, to kind of just, um, this is like a whole, you know, longer topic, but that I could talk about for 20 minutes on its own, but just kind of just looking back to, uh, so I had a, here's, here's an example, had a guest on, on, um, my podcast that said so openly, so candidly, he talked about when he was two years old. And then when he was five years old, these moments in his life that created a fear of ab abandonment and, um, and he was so, he had such clarity in his thought of like at two and at five, these, these experiences that oriented his life to where then he was talking about what happened to him two weeks prior to that interview at, you know, 38 and how he felt like that was tied, that was tied to being, you know, two and five and having these formative experiences early on. And, and that's kind of just one drop in the bucket as I've absorbed other people's stories. Um, it's just made me reflect back on like, Oh shit, this stuff goes way back to when, you know, our minds were being, being formed at two, four, five, eight. So that's why I go all the way back to, to that. And I think it's, it does tie to a very entrepreneurial, um, path of, okay, where can I be most useful? Where can I be most useful? Right. How can I just be constantly providing value? Right. And probably from sounds very benevolent, but it actually was probably from a deep seated, uh, fear of, I won't, I will be abandoned or I won't be included or I won't, uh, get to hang out with my cool older brothers or fight for attention. From fight for, right. With, unless from, I'm from being useful. So it's, uh, I think it is, um, it's a good orientation, but I'm sure it comes from a, a, a place of fear just as much as it comes from anything else. Like, you know, nobly wanting to, to help others. Well, it's awesome that you've pinpointed this and you're able to, I mean, you either, the way it works is like you either control your past or your past controls you. Right. So you understand that. So, okay, let's, let's keep the story moving along. You go to, you go to college. Are you thinking I'm going to go to college? I'm going to become an entrepreneur after college. I'm going to go work for a big company. Like what, what, what was going on then? The, um, I'm going to try to tell this in, in a, a way that I've never said before. That's just for my own my own, uh, you know, entertainment is to, to not tell you know, the same story. So I think, um, and we certainly hit that on the head with the first, with the first uh, story starting when I was, uh, you know, when I was I'm three years old. Yeah, no. So thank you for that, uh, tee up. Cause it's, it's, uh, these conversations, honestly, they help me kind of unpack certain things. So I think in, in high school, I, um, 
was a decent basketball player, but, um, but I knew that that's not where I was going to be useful in the world. I was a, a pretty good student. Didn't, um, didn't have to work too hard and recognize, okay, I was able to, to get pretty good grades and, and, uh, went to Wake Forest in North Carolina, um, and, uh, from Dallas. And, and I don't really know why I went there. I, if you want to hear something super crazy, I, uh, wrote myself a note when I was in like an eighth grade and it was like, open this in 2008. So I wrote it in, 10 years later. I wrote it in like 1998 or something. It's like, open this in 2008. Somehow through multiple moves and everything, uh, my mom preserved this letter. I opened it in 2008 and in 1998, I had written down, you're going to go to Wake Forest. <laughs> and I swear to you, I, it, I felt like it never crossed my mind until senior year because I thought I was going to go to Notre Dame. And, and then went and visited Notre Dame and it was like 46 degrees in, in September next weekend. I was in, in uh, Wake Forest and it was 72 degrees. And, um, and I thought that's why I chose it. I told that story like a million times. I thought I was going to Notre Dame and then chose Wake Forest because of the weather. And, and I opened up this letter in 2008 and I had written it 10 years prior that I was going to go to, uh, go there for college. So, so strange. Um, and went there basically thinking that I, I wanted to study development economics. So they had a great development economics program, which is the study of economic, uh, the application of economic theory to developing regions around the world. And it was this very bespoke program. Like, and, and by the way, again, these are why I've, I thought I was going there, but I had written when I was like, I don't know, 12, 12 years old that I was going to go there. Um, but I thought I was choosing it because of this program. I really wanted to study international development and, and then started to work on, on the ground in, in poverty alleviation and international development in Cape Town, South Africa, right after graduation. And I thought that, that was my life's path was you know, where I was going to be useful is helping um, developing regions of the world eventually through working at the world bank. And, uh, if you study development economics, that's kind of where you think you're going to end up world bank or IMF. And, um, and yeah, I, I thought that was going to be where I was, where I'd be most useful, but looking back, I, it's so, um, it's so obvious. I wanted to be an entrepreneur cause I was always starting things on the side. I started, a Nonprofit in college. I started a fly fishing company, the one that we chatted about a few, a few minutes ago, um, before the podcast started. And I was, I was. It's like I was um, pulling against my natural wiring. And just in the conversation five minutes ago about going back to just the childhood experiences and childhood wiring, I feel like my life in many ways is is, uh, is a series of pulling against my natural wiring and then kind of giving in. And the example in this part of life was I thought I wanted to go work at the world bank, but I was always creating these things on the side. And then while I was working on the ground in, in, um, South Africa, I, I was working for this nonprofit. I was like, I could be a lot more useful by taking my hobby of, of web development just something I did on the side. This is like before the startup craze. Just, it was just, I didn't know what, I really didn't know what a tech startup was, but I was a, I was a developer. Like I coded sites, uh, on the side. Um, but it would be like, you know, if you just played guitar, uh, on the side, like it was really compartmentalized as this side thing. 
But while I was working for this, this nonprofit called Kuyasa in Cape Town, right outside of Cape Town, South Africa, I was like, you know, I could be most useful by building out a website for them to receive donations online. And I was like, that was it. It's kind of basic. Um, and then probably four or five weeks into the ideation of receiving donations online, this was 2000, uh, 2008. Um, I was like, Oh my God, every nonprofit should be receiving donations online. And, and you know, this was 11 years ago, but this was a time when no one, no nonprofits were doing that. And the term crowdfunding didn't even exist. So this is super early on in that. And it was just kind of following that thread of, okay, I could be useful by building this out. And then four or five weeks later, Oh my God, this could be useful to nonprofits around the world. And, uh, and I guess I followed the, these, these threads or what seemed like projects and they just kept, it was just another series of kind of entrepreneurial venture. Yeah. I mean, I, James, I love this story because this is how the world is. No one has the idea, like while they're in the shower, while they're lying in bed of like some idea that's going to change the world. Everyone's like, Oh, I want to be an entrepreneur. I don't know what the idea is yet. You have to live it. You have to you know, eat the dog food, as they say. So you're out there in South Africa, you're starting businesses, you're, you're, uh, you're pushing yourself forward and you start to see this, this problem that you're, that you're already building a solution for. And like, it turns out that it's a much bigger problem than you ever thought when you were building, you know, a little website, uh, in the very beginning. Totally. It's yeah. The, um, a, a good friend was chatting with me two or three days ago on, uh, we're, just FaceTiming and she's up in Toronto and she has a, a consultancy up there. And, um, she said she wanted to set up time because she wanted to, um, uh, get some, uh, some big James thoughts on what she should do with her, her potential idea and uh, of a startup. And, and, what I, what I found interesting about that is she was setting up the, the FaceTime because she wanted to, which in, in her mind, tap into like big thinking. And when we actually set up the conversation, um, one of the things that I, I said to her was that, that I don't necessarily think that I think really big. I just, I actually, it's very, it's the opposite. I start really small and follow these threats like, oh, this nonprofit could fundraise online. It seems really easy. It wasn't this big idea. Um, and that would lead to a company that I built called Tilt that, um, that would take me to uh, Y Combinator and, and Silicon Valley and, and be funded by these amazing uh, investors and, uh, and be bought by Airbnb. But that's the, that is the above the line version. Um, I have a podcast called Below the Line. So happy to tell you the below the line version of that, that story because it's not quite as uh, succinct or, um, or happy, but that, that idea started super small and I was just following, pulling on a thread. And I think that, um, what stops people from thinking big or what can stop people from thinking that they can build something really big is that is in this scenario two days ago, just the thinking that it starts and, and, and stops with big thinking. And, and what I said, it was, it's, it's just, it's actually the opposite. It just starts super, at least for me, super tactical, super small. And, um, and then I just kind of piece these things together and then four weeks in, five weeks in, that's when it's like, oh, this could be pretty big, 
but I never got to that. I would never get to that point if I didn't start actually really small and just start chipping away at a small problem. I think that's perfect insight. I don't, I think it's really difficult to say, Oh, I want to start up and write down your notes for the day. Okay. Start a startup much more applicable, practical to like say, okay, research ideas, write down skill sets, combine these things and start to like, think about what I'm good at, what I'm passionate about, where could, where, where can could, I be most useful? Where can my skill set be useful? Right. Little steps. Right. And they say, you know, when you make a list, make it as specific and detailed as possible because the more grand big that it gets, it's like, uh, I don't know how to do that. I know how to do so. I know how to like go check off things off a list that, that say pick up dog food. Right. Very simple. Oh my God. I, I love lists by the way. I love super ta- There we go. Nice. You have your list. I've of, got, I make a, I make a list every single day, every single week. I used to do it on the computer and I had like a whole folder and now I write, I like writing it by hand. Right. I'm taking pictures. It's not the most organized system, but every single day I'm like checking stuff off. No, I think, um, we would all be less stressed in the world if we, if we could make use of less, uh, more. I, I know for me, I, my, probably the single next to, to getting good sleep and waking up every morning at the same time. Um, the biggest productivity hack that, that has resonated with me and, and I swear by is, is making lists. So lists of what you want to do, what do you want to accomplish by the end of the week? Um, by the end of the day, the, uh, I, I almost, uh, wrote down. So I also write down on the back of my hand, something I've done since high school, the big thing that I want to get done by the end of the day, the one or two big things. Um, and I didn't today because I was going to be out and about in LA, um, and was coming over here and going to visit a, a portfolio company, um, here in a few hours and, and just felt like it's just strange if I'm, you know, meeting, uh, people and, and I've got what looks like a tattoo of a to-do list on my hand. But, but I, um, before going to bed, writing out the things you did that day and the things you want to go uh, that you want to do the next day, you know, it could be at 6 PM. It could be at 8 PM, but that is so powerful for your psychology to just, your, you can just let it go. Your brain is like, okay, it's safe. It's somewhere. We can revisit that later. If you have those four or five things, um, that you want to do tomorrow, just fumbling around in your head, your brain is kind of rightfully telling you like, Hey, I need to revisit these. I need to keep reminding you about these things. But if you write it down, so simple, but so powerful. And then if you write down the things you did that day, um, completely different bucket of, of, I think, uh, mental health investment, but that just shows you what you accomplished that day. So you can go to bed feeling like, okay, I did five pretty important things. This is the idea of zero inbox. I do that. Yeah. So it's, I mean, if something is in your inbox, you gotta take care of it. If it's not, don't have to think about it anymore. Right. It's, it's a system. This is a, right. The list is a system. And yeah. I love the idea of encapsulating your day and here's the, here's my failures. Here's my successes. Here's what I did. You need those things. Yeah. That, that's even a, a better idea is write down. This is what I messed up on. This yeah. is what I, uh, if you're I not thinking of a failure, then you're not putting yourself out there enough. Right. No, I think I would be even, uh, even better. I don't, I don't, I don't do that, but I probably should. It's I, one thing that I, uh, started to do, Lately is every write down every uh, white lie that I would say in a day or a week, and and really internalize a you know false truth that I just so you know I think I, I read um, the average uh, the average American in this study 
uh, would say a white lie every six minutes in conversation. So obviously if you're just sitting quietly or playing an instrument, you're not lying, but in conversation every six minutes. And I think it's, it's not, uh, it's not necessarily malicious, uh, but it is easy to slip into those things. So I'd write down, okay, this is where I messed up. Um, I'm, I'm like on a huge, uh, honesty kick, uh, the last few years of life. And, and, um, and so that's why I want to internalize those each day. But I think writing down the things where you messed up is, is, is great. Um, so that you can one, get that out of your head. So the, and also the, see where your insecurities are. Right. Yes. See, okay. What caused that? Why did I say that? What for the lying? Honestly, that's right. the, that's the easiest. It's like, okay, why did I say that? Oh, I didn't want that discomfort in the conversation or I didn't want to, uh, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever it is. And you start to like unwind why we do these, uh, these things or for mistakes made. Honestly, I think you could write down, okay, this is how I want to get better, but also shit. I think it's really great to write it down to say, if I'm not making mistakes each day, then I'm not doing enough to, to your point. Like it's, you need to be hitting these, uh, these local maximums of your skill set and failing or else you just, you're going to look back and you played it. I, in my view, you would, you will look back and you will realize you played it too safe. Yeah. James. So you mentioned your podcast, it's called below the line. You know, you always talk about how everyone's podcast, you talk about the logistics above the line of how tilt raised all this money and got bought by Airbnb and had millions of users. And it's like, wow, that's just, you know, the media society says that's a pretty incredible story. Peel it back. You look below the line. What was it actually like going through this journey? What were like the ups, the downs, the feelings? I'm talking to you today. You're an extremely enlightened, sophisticated, deep thinking person. It sounds like you've like... Making me feel comfortable again. I do not... Yeah, that's not how I feel. I'll tell you the below the line version of Yeah, yeah. Like, how'd you you get to this point? Well, I'll tell you the below the line version of uh, just even what what you said just then... um, Enlightened, sophisticated. I, I, that's, those are the last things that I, that I feel. In fact, I wake up each day, um, increasingly so feeling, man, there's just, I don't, I don't know what I believe on almost any topic. Like it's, it is very, um, difficult for me to settle on what I think about just some pretty fundamental things because, um, I was chatting with, a with, before the podcast started, I did a couple, uh, kind of like test fake interviews with friends, um, just to get used to this, this yeah. style of, of, you know, communication, and everything. And, and the friend said to me at, uh, he was a really successful founder. He's, he, um, he built a company. He was in uh, Y Combinator, like 18 years old and then sold his company when he was like 19 and he was 26, 27. And he said that he felt like he had way more direction when he was uh, 18, 19, 20 than he does at 26. And he kind of had this realization in this podcast conversation and kind of like tilted his head back, kind of opened his eyes widely. He's like, man, I had more direction back then than I do now. And then he, and he went on and he said, I feel like I don't have any direction right now. And I think there are two ways to interpret that. But when I, when I heard that, I was like, shit, you know, I'm 33. I feel the exact same, or I guess I was 32. Then I was like, feel the exact same, more direction at 22, 23. 
Um, but the two ways to interpret that are direction in terms of you're filling these, these grooves that the world has made for you. Like you could feel a lot of direction in uh, medical school if you're a third generation uh, doctor to be in your family. You'd feel like, okay, this is what I need to do. Um, or you could, you could actually not fill a groove in a predestined groove in society and kind of go into the wilderness. And if you're taking a machete to the jungle, trying to make it to, you know, El Dorado, you can feel pretty freaking directionless, not knowing, all right, am I even going in the right direction? Am I going to miss it by 30 miles? Um, and, or am I going to die in here? And, um, and I think that that, that is perhaps a better way of interpreting it. Um, at least for me is, okay, get comfortable with this discomfort of not knowing if you're going to, you know, find that golden city or that, that, um, destination that you set out with entrepreneurial ventures. That is a, um, I think it gets scarier as you get older because, it's a little less socially forgiving just to be kind of in the wilderness at 33, at 43, at 53 versus 23. And so to answer your question, um, I think I wake up each day and I'm like, man, I'm kind of in the wilderness and I don't feel sophisticated. I don't feel, uh, I don't feel like I have the finger on the pulse of, of how things work, but I'm trying to cultivate that, the, um, the ability to, to sit in that discomfort and be okay with it. Don't know if it's going to reach El Dorado or, or, uh, die in the jungle, but that's kind of the two sides that I'm trying to get comfortable well, with in life. How the universe works, right? When you're young and you're marching towards one finite goal, me, I was marching towards investment making. Everything was investment making. I got the job. I, great, I got the job and you get it. And it's like, uh, I don't like this. What the hell is happening here? What, but like, the world's telling you like, keep doing it. Yeah. Alex, it's just going to open up more and more doors. It's going to open up more and more doors and more and more doors. And then you fucking turn 55 and you're like, all right, I've got like seven doors open around me, but they all suck. Yeah, exactly. So, but that's the work of when you're outside of that singularly focused goal, you know, your LeBron James championship, championship, like, when he's done playing basketball, like what's next? Like he moves to LA and starts to set up these, you know, next things in media and making television and movies. But like, great, we're not all LeBron James. So you have to think of like, okay, well I had a startup. I learned a lot of things. I met a lot of people. I had some amazing experiences and quite a journey. Now, how do I, how do I like live with this angst inside that's inside of me that society is saying, Oh, you're 33 years old. You, you got to be producing. And like, why, why don't you have another company yet? And why aren't you making lots of money? And why aren't you changing the world? I, James, if I can tell you from this podcast, the main learning that I've had from it is that in all the you know, super successful people that I've had on it, nobody has a grand plan for their career. They just kind of work hard, put themselves in the right place, and the universe. The universe has a way of figuring itself out, working itself out. For people that are you know, good people, hardworking people, people like you, but you're right sitting there like in the place that I'm sitting now with, with my, uh, with my FinTech startup with pay club, which is a great app, great space, uh, that I know. Well, I, I, I do want to come back to the below line version of, of tilt. Uh, okay, let's go. Well, I, don't, well, I don't need to talk anymore. Let's go. But let's no, go. no, 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 please finish your thought. Um, no, I'm just saying it's like, 
the world's against you. Society is against you. No one thinks that you're going to make it work. You're like operating basically in a dark hole every day, trying to put together something that the universe is saying, oh, don't do this. It's not going to work. But within your heart, you know, it's going to work. And so it's like this clash. Well, and that's, that's the, um, yeah, that is, as you put it, that is the work. Like that is, that is the beauty of it. Um, if you can find that, that beauty, uh, it is, you know, that is how this thing is perfectly designed. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I use the words perfectly designed because, you know, nature is, is in a biological sense, um, in a physics sense, the universe at large, like it's, it is, uh, perfectly designed and in like our ecology has, has, millions upon millions, billions of years of evolution to its current, current, current state. And it is beautifully designed through a lot of iteration to where, yeah, I mean, nature wants you to die. Nature like is not providing you a feeding tube of sustenance every day. Like every day you wake up and nature is working against you. And that's, that's why I, I think it's, it's like, whether it's a, a startup and, um, the market is not just telling you every day, all right, this is, you're being useful, Alex, and this is totally needed. And here's just money going into your bank account. It's the exact opposite. You have to hunt, kill, grow, do everything you need to do to find sustenance every day. And you got to do it over and over and over again. Um, and, and I'd say, I say beautifully designed because that the beauty in that is like, it is, holy shit, would it be a pretty, um, uh, if you really imaginatively go through how awful it would be if you just, you were born, you had a feeding tube from nature and you just sat there and you had this feeding tube and then 80 years later you died. Like that would be so beyond miserable. I mean, like it's, it's miserable enough to just be at a restaurant for more than four hours. Like it's when we are, uh, just given everything it really doesn't, I mean, your, your spirit stays in kind of a, a two dimensional sense, but when you have to strive for it, when you have to fail along the way, um, when you have to create something new that nature hasn't provided, uh, like, you know, uh, any type of innovation that makes your community a little bit better off, um, that it's, it's like you're fulfilling what you were designed to do like being useful in any sense, you're fulfilling what your DNA designed you to do. And in your DNA and nature has said, okay, uh, Mar Vista. That's where we're in LA, yeah. right? Okay. Very good. I learned about it. For th- All right. Mar Vista. Uh, we're, we're going to give you Alex and he's going to have the option of fulfilling a need within your community or the world at large and it's pay club. And you can choose whether to try to fill that, that, useful void or not. And, and it's like, you know, it's like a video game. You just, you choose to do it because it's a lot fucking more fun than sitting back and be like, no, actually I could go to fight the big boss on level one, but I actually want to just stay run in circles and stay alive in this, you know, virtual video game. Like that's, that is the, that is, that is how insane it would be. Um, to actually imaginatively think through if we were just given everything and nature worked in like that would be the dumbest video game in the world. You wouldn't spend more than 
seven minutes playing that. Um, and so in a lot of ways, I think in a lot of deep ways, it's, it's beautifully designed to where it is difficult. The, um, the story with tilt, just going to, to uh, just circling back to your question, I can sum that up really succinctly of it was six years and about four months of that. I felt like we were ahead of the eight ball and I felt like, wow, this is going to work. So the other five years and eight months, it was, um, every morning waking up being like, we're behind, we're behind, we're going to fail. Um, and, and we're, this isn't right. Like there's so many things we need to do to write the ship. It was really, really taxing on the, uh, on the system. Um, and ultimately we did not achieve our, uh, our dream and our goals and had to quote unquote sell to Airbnb. But you know, it was, it was much more out of, we were very vulnerable and had to find a home, uh, for a business that we had raised about 70 million in and got to a, a massive valuation and flew really high, really close to the sun. Um, and, and ultimately the, the wings kind of melted off and the, uh, you know, as the, uh, as the story goes and flew too close to, to the sun, built out this, this product that, yeah, the above the line version, millions of users. And, and, uh, it was, it was, I loved the application, but that I'd say in its own right was this like beautiful experience. I describe it now as like a beautiful mess. Um, but it was a beautiful experience because we did not find El Dorado. But uh, when I look back on it, it was, it was, um, it will absolutely be one of the most formative experiences of my life because at least learned how to freaking take a machete to the jungle uh, pretty pretty uh, efficiently. I mean, yeah, James, you're talking about this six-year journey and four months of it feeling like you're you know, ahead of the giant gorilla that's chasing you. What do you, what do you take from this? What do you internalize? And what do you attribute the, the outcome of it to? There's two main things that I think about the most, um, about just, well, for example, for your, for your audience, for your listeners, um, where they can, they can learn from, well, there's three things The there's kind of like the macro idea, which is, um, the, I think everyone should become creators and everyone should become um, if they want to choose entrepreneurship as their medium of creation, great. But everyone should become creators, not for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, but for just the enlivening of the soul to create, to strive, to fail along the way. It is, you know, there's two types of failure. There's controlled failure and there's terminal failure. Uh, terminal failure is you don't get to play the game anymore. Um, controlled failure is Jordan Spieth, a golfer or LeBron James shooting free throws over and over and over again and miss getting all the misses out of the way in practice before the game. And, and in sports, you, it is so obvious you partake in controlled failure as much as possible so that you do not fail on the main stage. And I think that's, um, it is a great metaphor for, for, uh, or rule of thumb more than a metaphor for life. 
to partake in these controlled failures. Starting entrepreneurial projects are controlled failures. Um, and you partake in them, whether they succeed or fail, or whether it's creating art or learning, play, play the guitar, or you have these amazing roses here at your house. Um, gardening. Like that is a way to just participate in creation to see what it's it's like and to learn. God, you learn so much from any of these forms of creation. Um, humility, uh, patience, you know, these these pretty obviously foundational uh, virtues. And and so the macro th- thought of my experience was uh, it was a beautiful mess. And I'm much more emphasis on the beauty side of it when I look back. There were stretches of nine, ten months where I was really, I woke up and I didn't even realize it until afterwards, but I was in a pretty significant depression, Um, waking up each day and really dreading uh, each day of of trying to figure out how to to navigate um, the day before me with, with, you know, 100 employees and really not having a feeling like I had to have these really big answers and not having them. The micro things, the tactical things that I, uh, but I still describe it as, as absolute beauty, absolute, uh, I mean, every adventure has those lulls. Uh, and, and I, I really, uh, I'm not just, I'm not just optimistically looking back. I really loved it. Um, in the grand scheme of things, even in the midst of, of nine, 10 10 months uh, there at the end where it was, it was a pretty extreme depression, not extreme, pretty significant. And, uh, but the tactical things that I take away from it of how to avoid those nine, 10 months for any founder out there first is I set, you know, it's, it's just the, the art of setting expectations. I continually set these massive outrageous expectations and, and I'm still working through what is the optimal way of setting expectations, but there's uh, this quote of happiness is experience minus expectations. And if you're setting these outrageous expectations, we're going to have this million users by this point in time. We're going to be the largest in the world. We're going to be the social network of money. That can feel really good in the coffee with the investor. That can feel really good in, in the way that it helps you close an investment from a from, uh, Andreessen Horowitz, but that when I reflect back on it, I think it's really unhealthy to continually be behind the eight ball. And I'm still trying to work out the exact equation or optimal approach to expectation settings, but I know that it's actually uh, from experience that it was really unhealthy for me to feel like we are way behind in our expectations for six years. And that is something that I'm, I'm still trying to work through the optimal flow, but that is, I don't know, have you experienced setting massive expectations for pay club and then, and then feeling the emotional toll of, of not hitting those day after day or week after week? Yeah, of course. And I've also found that the successes rarely come from where we think they're going to come from. It's always from some other place where you're not expecting. And yeah, we're saying, okay, we're going to be this by X date and this by X date and startups kind of everything just takes longer, goes slower, is harder than you expect at the onset, right? And the incredible outcomes that we do have, it's like, it never comes from the person that we know is going to come in and invest. He always flakes. And some person from out of nowhere comes and is like, you know, here's a check for 50 grand. And it's like, oh my God, how did, where did that even happen from? And we had zero expectations that that was going to happen. We had all these expectations that, that this was going to happen. So it's like, 
but it's difficult, right? You have to set goals and make lists and, and that's what keeps us pushing forward. But where is it like just being able to experience and live in the moment? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I think that that's, so the, the my podcast is, is really, um, it's part of this process of, of writing a book around creator psychology and how to optimally approach, you know, each day, uh, and your, your, creative endeavor with the healthiest psychology. And I think that this, um, expectation setting goal setting is so wildly under discussed because of the effect that it can have on you as a creator or on your team and in your team psychology. And I, you know, it's the counterpoint to setting startup goals is, is these side projects that, like your podcast, for example, have you ever felt, um, how would you, how would you describe your psychology, your day-to-day psychology about podcasts versus your day-to-day psychology about your startup? It's so funny. Cause when I think of the podcast, it's pretty much just joy. I smile. It's happy. And I think of the startup, it's like, ah, oh, there's my list of 25 different things. And the podcast I've just let happen and I've experienced it and it's come to me and it's grown and it's works and it allows me to sit down with you and have this enlightening conversation and the startup you're right I've put so much focus and pressure on it that you just don't get to have that serendipitous moments of joy right yeah it is um that's a good analogy I really like that that's a it's great it and that's and that's why I feel like it's it's so powerful for us all to partake in creation because you can see these through comparing and contrasting where, and, and then start to just dissect, okay, what, what about this just feels like it's, it is touching on a void. And what about this and, and is, is going well because I'm not setting these massive expectations or it's just, you, you have this real experimental, um, case study of, of one psychological approach and another psychological approach and then finding a healthy balance between, between the two or, you know, borrowing from one, uh, to the other. And, and, um, one of the things that, so expectation was one micro tactical thing that I take away from that experience. And that, um, I think in my next, my next company, um, I'm going to be far more intentional about, the delayed gratification and setting uh, proper expectations so that that happiness equation ends up in a net positive rather than a net negative. Um, because in six years in, you can absolutely do really well. If you're like, you know, wanting to run a mile at a certain time or, or uh, wanting to work on your three-point shooting, absolutely set these crazy goals and, and it can, it can pull the best out of you and, and these, you know, finite, uh, examples, but for six straight years to feel like if you're in a cycling race and you are behind every day, that is, uh, and, and I, and this is my own experience, but I think very destructive to you being able to do your best. There's a, there's a psychology experiment, um, that I remember one of the two or three that I remember from psych 101 in, in college that um, it was people walking into um, the the experiment. They would go into these small rooms, and there there was a um, 
a, um, a bike hooked up to a monitor, stationary bike hooked up to a monitor. And they were in this uh, virtual race and a race that they thought had seven other participants in the rooms next to them. And, uh, but the, there was no one, it was just them and, and these other participants going into the room, but they were part of the experiment. So the screen would show them where they were, uh, in the race. And they figured out that, uh, the best time, the second best time came from when you were leading the race and someone else was just behind you mm-hmm. and pushing you. That was the second, your second best time. The best time was when you were second and you were chasing the leader and you were just behind them. And you're like, Oh my God, I'm second. I, I can do this. I'm so close. I'm like 10 yards from them. Right. And that would get your best time where you felt like you were just behind the leader. The stalking horse. Yes, exactly. That works in a 20 minute cycling race. I don't think that works in a six year long race on a bursts sprints. Right. I think that could work for eight months. But um, and we know so little about the biology of stress uh, as, as humans, but it's hard to imagine, you know, 10,000 years ago, uh, a million years ago, of being in, in a crazy amount of stress for 19 months straight. Even in a, in a tribal battle, you know, it last four days in the greco roman chased by a lion last two minutes two minutes right a um yes you worry about snakes you worry about threats just like you and i would uh you know if you worked at at uh at deloitte you'd still worry about things but as a startup founder you're really worrying about psychologically survival and the provision of of your team every day and I think that that's where it becomes really unhealthy to go 19 straight months, 27 straight months of feeling like you're behind the eight ball, of feeling like you know you could uh, not exist at any moment. So I think that as we understand more about the you know biology of stress, we're going to realize, holy shit, being behind the eight ball or feeling like you're you are failing in the in the uh, midst of expectations for 19 straight months is really destructive to your individual and collective psychology of the team. The second tactical thing that I learned from that experience um, in the below the line, the mess part, uh, was listening. Um, just in all forms, um, I think as a founder and as an entrepreneur, and and. This has come up a handful of times um, with other founders that there's a great book that sums it up pretty uh, eloquently. What got you here won't get you there. And as a founder, as an entrepreneur, um, as a, I mean, any creator, your strength is that you're going to create in the face of, of everyone else kind of thinking that you don't need to create in that space, whether you're an artist trying a new form or whether you're an entrepreneur building out uh, pay club, I'm sure people are like, well, why can't you just use PayPal for that? And, and that's what we got all the time. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so your strength is being able to not listen to the 99 no's finding that one. Yes. That investor that does see the world as you do, but 18 months in two years in, that becomes a really big weakness. If you can't listen to, to those around you. And I think I, um, for fear of it failing, talk about 
you know, the destructiveness of expectation setting for feel of fear of, fa- of failing to hit expectations or fa- failing to, to find that providence that is, you know, entrepreneurial success. I wouldn't listen nearly enough to the market, to team members, to customers just felt like, no, we're getting enough signal. We need to keep going in this direction. And, um, that failure to, to listen is, uh, I think is, um, is really, again, you can make it pretty far without that, but holy shit, do you need to hit a certain point 12 months in when you've kind of got it, you know, not maybe not even zero to one, but zero to 0.5, you start to say, okay, now I need to switch into significant listening mode. Right. Yeah. There's a difference of having blinders crushing, going into your hole and just executing on tasks versus listening to what the market's saying, the investors, customers, users, letting that inform your decision-making. Cause you, you're right. There's a balance, right? Right. It's a, uh, it's a huge balance. And in the early, uh, the early stages you weight it one way and, but then, um, it's the hardest thing to do as an entrepreneur, but you have to start to shift the weight to the other side. Um, or else, yeah, you'll wake up in a world where you're like, like, I did where I was like, fuck, we really should have listened to, um, I should have been a much better listener to the signals around me. Do you think you could have, it could have had a different outcome? Had you, had you taken a different course? Like, I mean, I don't like thinking about, oh, if I did this, if I did that, but you know, there's maybe a useful exercise to think, well, what if? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, I could have had, you know, 360 degrees of different outcomes. Um, in many ways we got really lucky to, uh, to sell the company. Uh, in many ways, I got really lucky from starting something in my bedroom to, uh, to, you know, acquisition by Airbnb. But, um, but yeah, I'm sure there's, there's 359 other degrees, uh, of, of outcomes. Um, but I'd say that the, the reason I don't ruminate on it too much is, is it was part of controlled failure versus, Terminal failure, like it's, if you end up better on the other side of the failure, then that's by definition controlled failure. Like if, if LeBron James becomes a better three point shooter by going out, spending four hours shooting a thousand of them and missing 600, yeah, he's missing 600 three pointers, but he is better for it. And so I'd say in a very real way, I feel like it. It, um, you know, as the adage goes, did it happen for you or to you? I feel like it just happened for me and therefore I'm just grateful that it happened. Yeah. So under that, um, set of reasoning, there is no such thing as failure. The, you know, the controlled failure is, <clears throat> is being 85 and feeling like, fuck, I really regret not heeding the call to adventure. That's in my view, that's, that's the terminal failure because you had one life. Uh, but the controlled one is, uh, can feel really shitty at times, but it's like, man, I really got the shit kicked out of me. <laughs> um, that's controlled failure. Yeah. I love it. So James, I loved hearing about that six year journey and earlier in the podcast talking about the journey that you're, you're on post, post tilt. Where do you think, where do you think you go from here? Like we talked about letting the universe kind of decide you're, you're being intentional, you're surrounding yourself 
with other smart, driven people. You've obviously carved out an incredible network for yourself. You've had a great experience. If you had to write yourself a note for 10 years from now, what do you think that note would say on it? Oh, that is a great, great question. Um, and yeah, I'd say if I woke up 10 years from now and read the note and, and I do this every year, I write a note, um, in January for me to, to open up the next January. Um, but if I were to, to extrapolate that out for the year or for the, for the decade, um, it actually would invest uh, a lot of, of sentiment and intention around being open to wherever, uh, wherever I can be most useful. And I think being really useful to, you know, I use that phrase because it's just so friggin' on point to what we're called to be. It's be useful. Like, if you had a billion dollars but didn't feel useful in your community, you by definition weren't feeling valuable. And if you don't feel valuable, then what is the point of these extrinsic, extrinsic, extrin, extrinsic values um, around you? And uh, so where can I be most useful is, is a question that, um, and I think in, in my career now, it's just finding an intersection of where can I be most useful with what do I lose track of time doing? And those two, those two things and finding the intersection at, at, um, on those two vectors. And, and I think right now I'm in this uh, phase of, I'm, uh, full-time in investing and in helping, uh, startups and, and just absolutely love it. And maybe that's where I'm most useful, but the, the, I think the process of finding where you are most useful is applying where you think you're going to be most useful and listening to what your community. I mean, if you're a blacksmith in a community of 200 people, 200 years ago, same process. It's like, okay, is this what they need versus like, I don't know, there's 15 blacksmiths and it's a 200 person community. It's probably not where you're going to be most useful. Um, find where your community is telling you you'd be most useful. And right now, I think instead of the machete to the jungle, it's much more of like a surfer kind of waiting for for the wave and, and being patient. I love that, letting the, letting the universe kind of make it happen and that practice and that work of being patient for that to happen. So last question, I'll get you out of here on this. Talked about providing value. You providing value, always wanting to, always wanting to do that. I think it's, you're right. Like there's, that's what probably, there's that happiness equation of, experience minus expectation also feeling useful big piece of it is there anything the listeners of this podcast there's lots of them they're hungry they're stri- they're motivated is there anything that they can do that would provide value to you well to the world at large is is to find where and there's a, a distinction of providing value and 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 um and being most useful um one guarantees the other, but but the the latter does not guarantee the former. Um, an example is is just you can provide value by you know I could come to your house every day and uh, repaint little marks on the walls outside your house. I'm providing value, but is that where I'm most useful? That fifteenth blacksmith in the town of two hundred is still providing some value, but it's not where they're most useful. 
And I think finding where you're most useful versus providing value, providing value is, is actually that's in the not listening camp. Like you'd be like, all right, James, that's kind of valuable, but Hey, you could be more valuable to the community than just touching up the paint outside my house every day. Um, useful is far more about listening and, and, um, gathering, you know, the, the information and signals around you where you can be most useful. So I think, you know, just for the, the world at large, the best way that I think, uh, listeners can, can benefit me or benefits, uh, their, their communities. And, and we're all so interconnected, especially in the world we live in now. I think it's just to try to develop and cultivate an ear for where they can be most useful. And if, and if it's, uh, if they're, you know, in, in school thinking about what they can, what they should pursue as a, as a career, then maybe it's just finding that intersection of where they can be most useful tied into, uh, to where they lose track of time. That's awesome. That's great advice. James, this whole, this whole podcast was, was a lot of fun to do. Thank you so much, Alex, for, for one, doing the podcast. Uh, you helped guide me and, and, uh, getting mine off the ground. And it is, uh, yeah, it's a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal speaking of being useful, you know, recording these conversations that you're able to have with, uh, some of your guests are insane. It's amazing. Um, being able to record them and share them with the world like you do is that is very useful. So thank you for doing what you do. Yeah, We're both very fortunate. So thanks for, uh, thanks for coming by and We'll talk soon. Thanks for having me, Alex. Thanks for listening today. If you like moving up, the best way you can support us is by telling your friends. That helps us grow. And leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks.